Hello everybody and welcome to a podcast of Biblical Proportions. Collaboration. Biblical Timeline versus Historical Timeline. Part 2. I want to thank Brian, Bruce and Daniel for joining our tribe on patreon.com slash biblical proportions. Thank you and welcome. Hi everybody, this is the second part of the conversation I had with uh, Gary Stevens from the History in the Bible podcast going over the biblical and historical timelines, comparing them. We finished part one last week with the destruction of Jerusalem and the beginning of the Babylonian exile to the east and the mass immigration to Egypt to the south. In Babylon is the hawkish faction, in Egypt the pragmatic faction. We start our conversation today a little bit before the destruction of Jerusalem, so we have some context once we start moving along. The final destination is the year 70 CE, when the Roman general Titus decides to sack, pillage, and burn Jerusalem, and later rename the province. Judea, Yehuda, no more. Palestine is the name. As a middle finger to the Jews, <laughs> they named their province after the Jewish ancient enemy from their holy book, the Philistines. At the end of the episode, I'll tell you about what's coming next. Now back to the conversation with Gary. So in the last years of Judea, we see the two factions, the two Hebrew factions, trading kings slash puppets. Yes. It's a, a hawkish pro-Egyptian king, then a pragmatist pro-Babylonian king, and on and on it goes until the Egyptians are pushed away. Yeah. And the end of the world is coming for the Hebrews. Yeah. In power, they have a king, Tzidkiyahu, and his court hell-bent on believing that Yahweh will stop Nebuchadnezzar. And this is when Jeremiah and his scribe, Baruch ben chronicle those last year before Armageddon came. They are part of the pragmatist faction calling <laughs> to bend the knee to, Debu- to Nebuchadnezzar to prevent Armageddon. They failed. In 586 BCE, Jerusalem is almost wiped off the face of the earth. Yeah. And some Hebrews are sent to live in... Uh, in Babylon, and some immigrate more, <laughs> a lot more than those who were just like a mere thousands, I think like at the most 10,000, you could say, in all the waves of exile to Babylon, left to Babylon, and the way that I read uh, uh, the account, the historical account in the book of Jeremiah, it seems that many more than that left uh, to live in Egypt, and we know that this was uh, you know, a gigantic, successful community in Egypt, uh, the Hebrews there for hundreds and hundreds of years. Yes. It became a hugely successful uh, community, uh, and even more so after the Greeks took over many centuries later yeah. and founded the city of Alexandria. Yeah, that, was, that had like a Jewish quarter. Yeah. It is possible one-third of the population of Alexandria was Jewish which would be a, a huge number. And they were writing and translating, and mm. they, they didn't uh, worship in the Temple of Yahweh. Jeremiah himself didn't worship uh, in the Temple of Yahweh. I don't think there's one uh, mention of him going into the Temple. Uh, he communicated uh, 
with God. You know, God spoke through his lips. It's yeah. the, the, the real, you know, uh, clear rules about how everybody should pray and do every single thing. This is most, cli- most likely the result of all the things that were written in Babylon during the exile. Now we're going to put down the rules, no more arguments. We get to decide these are the rules of worship, these are the rules of sacrifice, these are the holidays, this is how you celebrate them. Everything is written down now in this Babylonian exile. The two uh, prophets that uh, operate uh, in Babylon during Babylonian times, I forgot to mention that, that's Ezekiel, Ezekiel, and second Isaiah, Isaiah 2, whatever, that I think is uh, Shma'ayahu the Nehelamite, Shma'ayahu. And there are two more prophets that were executed according to the book of Jeremiah. He boasts about getting them burned alive in front of their community by uh, Nebuchadnezzar for uh, preaching a swift uh, Yahwistic victory over the Babylonians. Really gross stuff. Disgusting. Oh, that's right. I, f- I forgot Jeremiah was the guy going, no, 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 Babylonians, best mates, believe me. Really, don't. don't. So, the, so some of the Israelites are deported to Babylonia. It seems to have been a fairly good existence. Very recently, in the past 50 years, we dug up a lot of records uh, from Jewish families. I think there's something like five generations of a merchant family who were doing just fine. So these people weren't walking around in chains. The Babylonians just weren't good at being imperialists. They just weren't. Their heart wasn't in it. Their very last king decided to leave Babylon and move into the Saudi Arabian desert. Now, the king was an essential part of the many religious rituals throughout the year. So this would be like the Pope decides to leave Rome and emigrate to the Bahamas for 10 years. Forget Easter, forget, forget Christmas. Who cares about them? Yes. <laughs> so hey, the last king seems to, seems to have been a complete nut job. In fact, he was such a nut job. When the Persians came knocking on Babylon's door, a lot of his high officials said, you know, we think you could do a better job of running us than we can. Please, it's all yours. The Babylonian exile was especially rough for the Hebrew leadership. The first generation of Hebrew leaders in exile. And they were desperate to keep their status uh, in the community, even if it was in Babylon. So this is when much of the literature was written. Histories get their final touches. They were mostly written during the time of Josiah. But now literature blossoms. And if we trace the mentions of uh, Moses along the historical timeline, we see that before the book of Deuteronomy, which is like a speech, a final speech by Moses, Moses wasn't a national hero loved by all. He was a Levite hero. After Deuteronomy, we see, for example, in the uh, book of Jeremiah, 20, 30, and 40 years later, Moses is now a hero to all. So the Babylonian exile becomes the Egyptian dystopia, the wilderness uh, cinematic universe, and Moses is the hero. 
And for the pragmatic faction, they write into Genesis that the cause of all their problems wasn't an evil uh, king, uh, an oppressive king. No, it was internal infighting. <laughs> and uh, we see through the story, and it matches history, they decided to turn over a new leaf and move on as a family once they got to Egypt. So their happy ending is where they are now, at the time of writing, in Egypt. And they love Egypt. It's wonderful. And the pharaoh is uh, regal and uh, respectful and respected. <laughs> the hawkish faction simmering in Babylon, they were also backstabbed by the Egyptians in this geopolitical Game of Thrones. That could also be an added incentive to focus on the story, on the ancient story that they had of Moses le leading people out of Egypt. And we see in the stories that they put down in Exodus that their perspective is conflict between the righteous and holy leaders and, <laughs> and their idiotic and disrespectful followers. Uh, uh, ungrateful followers. Yeah. It's also during that time that a lot of other stuff is put in text, uh, lamentations and songs and the strict rules for, you know, whenever we go back to the land and so on. So the Persians took over the entire, pretty much the entire Middle East. They were the largest empire yeah. by far, by far, until that time. Amazing. Amazing. And also they weren't uh, half bad. That also, yeah. just like they treated people uh, as kindly as they were ever treated up to that point. They, exactly. They seemed to, it was basically uh, live and let live. There was no attempt at religious oppression. The exact opposite. It was a case of you do what you like. As long as, you know, you pay your taxes. Yeah. And you can have like any form of government that you like. Yeah. You like it this way, you like it that way. That's okay. So there's uh, two people involved in, in the refoundation of Judea. Ezra and Nehemiah. And uh, yeah. in your notes, and I think you're 100% right, you wrote that uh, it's presumed that uh, Ezra uh, connected the books for the first time, right? He and brought them back to Israel. That's that's a common. Uh, the kind of right, Nehemiah is described in the books as, as the governor Nehemiah. of Jerusalem, sent back by the Persian. He rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra has a completely different role. Ezra is the religious reformer, I suppose. No, the religious codifier. Codifier, that's good. Uh, codifier, something. The books of the Bible actually say Ezra came first and followed by a generation later, Nehemiah. They can't possibly be right mm. if, if you read them. It has to be Nehemiah first and then Ezra. Now, I forget, in Tanakhs, are Ezra and Nehemiah two separate books or are they one? Now they are considered one. I'm looking at it now. Okay. Ezra and Nehemiah. In Christian Bibles, they're, they're two separate books. This is for uh, the listeners of my podcast. I think, and this is just a guess as of now, a hunch, whatever, that Ezra is the editor that I call on the podcast, uh, the first editor. And I see him like uh, he's a priestly editor and uh, he, he looks to me like a technician. Like he's just bunching things together, but he's not 
an artist or a craftsman that puts a lot of yeah. emphasis in the evolution of the plot and to not have plot holes and that everything will, looks fine. No, that only came later. He's the one that connected uh, all the traditions. And actually, it, if this is true, it explains why he was retained in uh, Jewish folklore as the disciple of uh, Baruch ben who was the author of Genesis, and that saying that Baruch ben and Irmiah and Jeremiah, when they were in old age, they came, of course it doesn't fit the timeline, isn't possible, that they in old age they came to Babylon, and there, and there they reconciled the two factions, the pragmatic faction and the hawkish faction. So about 100 years pass, Three, four generations have come and gone. And here comes the scribe Ezra and turns uh, the legends written in Babylon into Exodus and the legends written in Egypt into Genesis and puts them one after the other. His mission was to consolidate uh, the Jews in Judea under the auspices of the noble and wise King Cyrus the Great. Blessings be upon him. The, the Persian kingdom empire seems to be incredibly benign, really massively benign. But, of course, being benign doesn't mean you win out in history. Eventually, the nice Persian empire, full of nice people, letting all their subjects do nice things, was whacked on the head by Alexander the Great. Wow. One of the most stunning uh, historical events of all time. Yeah, considering that his little kingdom of Macedonia was tiny compared to the Persian Empire, and yet this guy manages to cut a scythe through the empire, although it did take him, yeah. I don't know, eight, nine, ten years oh, or something, but, but he does Yeah, it. but that's it. Yeah. <laughs> do you know, Gary, do you know these uh, YouTube videos where you see, like, uh, the territories and maps? Uh, oh, yes, over yeah, time? I've seen a couple of good ones of those, yeah. Oh, a lot of good ones. Yeah. And I, oh, like I really love, uh, I'm waiting for, always for Alexander the Great because you see all those kingdoms changing over time and then if you blink, <laughs> you just miss <laughs> how entire, the entire world just became Macedonian in one second. It was like, whoa, this happens so quickly. Yes. It's inconceivable. I- incredibly quickly. Now, Alexander had an idea for a what would you call it? a melded civilization yeah, nice. where Greekness, Greekness would lay like a big, comfy duvet. What's Hebrew for duvet? If I knew what duvet was, I would tell you. Oh, a duvet is a fat, puffy thing which you put on top of your bed to keep warm. We don't need to put anything on our beds to keep warm, <laughs> so I don't think we have a word for that. <laughs> we, we, we need to keep our beds okay. cold. <laughs> okay. I mean... In Australia, we actually call it a doona. But I, I use the American word, and British word duvet. Yeah. Right, you don't need such a thing. Okay, <laughs> makes perfect sense. Like, so a duvet is something that you put on top of your blanket? No blankets. It's a substitute for blankets. It's like a, a thin blanket? No, it's a fat one. So it's not that. <laughs> a, a duvet has a separate cover. And, and you buy the cover separately, according to your taste. And inside it, you put a big, fat, puffy thing, uh, which in the olden days was made of, um, you know, down, 
they didn't like this idea of gymnasium. No. Or women walking around outside. No. <laughs> no, can't have that. All that sort of stuff. So it was, a, it was a general revolt against Hellenism, and as you say, an attempt to return to a pure Jewish culture. These are, these are the Hanukkah people. Hasmoneans, Maccabees. Yes, Hanukkah. Now, just on that, I, I always call them the Maccabeans because I find it easy to pronounce. But they're often also called the Hasmoneans. Yeah. I don't know, people just seem to alternate between the names. Is there any reason to prefer one over the other? This is just scholars trying to confuse us. Uh, Hasmoneans, Maccabees, it's not the same, but they're basically interchangeable. And we don't have a better name, so you can use either one. Like uh, uh, the Maccabees, it's, it comes from one specific person. It's not a family name. It's a nickname of uh, Judah, Yehuda Maccabee. There yep. is a big uh, street uh, named after him <laughs> in uh, northern yes. Tel Aviv. And apparently uh, Maccabee comes from uh, the Aramanian word for hammer. He was like a, yeah, like a okay. warlord, like a great warrior. So this is like, also, best to mention, different kinds of Hebrews. These are not the Hebrews who go meekly into exile or just like, oh, we have been uh, surrounded. We are surrounded by the Babylonians. What are we going to do? Pray, pray, pray. No. Kill, kill, kill. And, and they make up all, all these kinds of stories about the other kinds of Hebrews who didn't fight because it was Shabbat. So they just like laid, oh. you know, laid there and got killed. So they promote uh, this uh, hardline version, of, I don't know if it's a version even, of uh, Hebrewism, Judaism, that also still exists uh, today. Those same two, same two factions are still with us. Yes, it's the same, same two factions. Fucking, it's fucking hell, it's been so long. Yeah. <laughs> oh, You'd yeah. think that we could have come up with some more subtle variants. After, after some decades of uh, guerrilla warfare, etc., against a decaying Seleucid kingdom, the Maccabees establish independence. Yay. And, and then they sort of, in some ways, they reveal their true colours because the little semi-sued province of Judea was eensy, weensy, weensy. It was maybe like um, 30, 40 kilometres circle around Judea. Wow. Didn't even, didn't, around, sorry, Jerusalem, didn't even touch the coast. So the Maccabeans thought, we've got to get back all our original of land, course. mate. Of course. Now, I've heard something like that happening. So <laughs> what they did was... So, I'm on the other faction, uh, Gary. I just want to say, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> other, yeah, other faction. Yes. So they uh, took back Galilee, which had not been part of the Persian province and never part of Judea. <laughs> yeah, and, and never part That's of Judea. All the way up north. That's true. That's true. Galilee was the old uh, kingdom of Israel, and from what I understand, thereafter, the southern Judeans or the Judeans proper. Always regarded the Galileans a bit suspiciously, you know, a bit mm, mm, mm. not uh, Jewish enough. No, yeah, exactly, not Jewish enough. Uh, and remember, Jesus was a Galilean, right? So mm, yeah. that makes him even dodgier. So here it's uh, this is maybe the first time that the imaginary story of the joint kingdom now has 
explicit political ramifications five mm. hundred years mm -hmm. after it was written because now they see the whole thing as being theirs so now they're fighting on these old stories of uh, you know Same. exodus and joshua and uh, samuel now this is <laughs> pushing them to you know go up north oh, my goodness up north and also as a special bonus special bonus down south just south of the old um, mm. kingdom of judah was edom edom gets a really bad rap in the bible Ooh. oh yeah you should read the prophet obadiah about this one Obadiah is just one rant and whack, 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 against the Edomites. I kind of like the Edomites. They seem harmless to me. I mean, the Edomites never get a say in the matter. You never hear... I read one academic was saying about Edomite enmity against Judah. And I thought, wait on. Yeah, exactly. The Edomites never say a word. The Judeans have a lot to say about Edom. So I thought, oh, that's a, okay, fair enough, yeah, all right. Anyway, by the time of the Hellenistic kingdoms, Edom was now called Idumea. Mm. And they take over Idumea. Idumea was not ethnically or religiously Jewish. And the Maccabeans thought, oh, bad choices. Let's fix that for you. <laughs> so, so they did. Uh, and, and the Idumeans would later play a very interesting role Right. In the destruction of the temple in 70 AD uh, and many other things. Yeah. So that takes us to, uh, I don't know, maybe the end of the Maccabees. That would be. Now, apart from the politics of the Maccabees now running this little area, the Seleucid Empire is gone. It's, it's dissolved in civil war and being attacked and all that sort of thing. Egypt is still to the south. They don't care about Judea. They're, they're fairly happy where they are. During the time of the Maccabeans, a very important development is the rise of the apocalyptic literature. Mm. And actually, just before I get to that, as you said, let's talk about the books of Maccabees. First Maccabees and second Maccabees. These are histories set in the Maccabean time. Now, contrary to what you may think, they're not a sequential history. They, in fact, cover the same time period. But one is a fairly amiable uh, chronology of the time, and the second one is, is definitely a religious tract, which basically seeks to uh, establish the theological credential, credential of the Maccabees. You, you, won't, you won't find these in the Jewish Tanakh. Nope. You won't find first and second Maccabees in Protestant Christian Bibles. Because what happened? Because the Old Testament in Protestant Bibles is identical to the Jewish Tanakh. Mm. Martin Luther King basically threw out anything that wasn't in the Tanakh. And the Protestants said, okay, we weren't reading them anyway. We'll see. <laughs> they were in Latin. We didn't understand anything. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we don't understand them. Who's heard of Second Maccabees? Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, they're not losing anything because they didn't. They never had them personally. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but the Catholics kept them, and even beyond that, uh, the Orthodox churches have the third and fourth books of Maccabees. Ah. Yeah, which are not histories. They're some sort of weird 
whatever. And they have even more books. And finally, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church has even more books, which very few Christians would have ever heard of. Maybe I mean, if I mentioned, never took anything out. Go on. No, they, they never took anything out. And one interesting thing is the Ethiopian Jews have the same books in their canon as the Ethiopian Christians. Uh. So books like uh, Yosipon uh, and a whole bunch of uh, what we call romances today, like Ruth or Judith. Mm. But those, those books are fairly sidelines. The really big development literary-wise in the Maccabean period was the creation of apocalyptic literature, which, basic, which really started a whole new theological slant in Judaism. And the apocalyptic uh, literature created the concept of a Messiah. It created the concept of an end of time. It created the concept of a figure of evil opposed to God. Now, Hasatan, Satan, does appear in the Tanakh, but he's just a bureaucrat. In fact, he's a friend of God. Yes. He's not evil. Yeah, in Job. He he does explicitly what God tells him to. In (laughs) In the apocalyptic literature, he turns into a figure of evil almost of the same power as God. And the apocalyptic literature portrays a cosmic battle which is being waged. And it's mirrored here on earth. And one day there will be an end of time. And the Jewish people will be saved by their oppression, by who's ever oppressing them today, which could be whoever. And <laughs> Who's oppressing and us today? <laughs> who's oppressing us today? Yeah, we want them out. And God will do this by sending, in, in most of the books, two messiahs. One messiah is going to be... Uh, a man of the house of David. Mm-hmm. The second one is going to be a righteous high priest. None of them are divine. 100% human. Mm. Right? And these people will save Judea. Until the time of King Seleucus I, the guy who founded it, time was, the year was a cycle. Okay, There's a cycle of, cycle of the seasons. And these cycles will go on forever. Certainly the Greek philosophers believed that the world was eternal and would never end. And as far as we can tell from the Jewish literature in the Bible, it's pretty much the same. The world will always be. God will intervene when he feels like it every so often, but it will always be. So Lucas I had a great idea. He started the year numbering of his kingdom at one and kept it going. It never stopped. Every other king, every other kingdom, when a new king came along, the numbering restarted at one. First year of, second year of. Under Seleucus I, with this concept of a numbering system which goes on and never repeats, it occurred to some people, well, maybe one day the numbering will stop the universal numbering and the world will end. If you just have in your consciousness that there is an eternal cycle Mm. of seasons and years, that right. doesn't necessarily occur to you. Right. And I guess uh, uh, because they were uh, under such grave uh, threat, 
it kind of gives you a feeling that the world might end. <laughs> oh, yes. They, 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 they were definitely oppressed and they were sort of released from their oppression. Uh, so the literature started under the Seleucid oppression, under the Maccabees. Oh, we're safe, we're safe. They're the Messiahs. No, the Maccabeans were eventually uh, wiped out by the Romans. Or actually, the, Romans, the Maccabeans committed suicide. God, they had some inept rulers. I mean, truly, monumentally incompetent idiots. And I, and I think it's, it's delightfully ironic that the most competent Maccabean ruler was Queen, and I'll say that again, Queen Alexandra. Good on you, lady. I have no idea who she is. Um, she was really good hmm. and nice and gentle. In the, in the defense of the Maccabees, which, you know, I don't uh, particularly appreciate, uh, everybody lost to the Romans, right? Everybody, like nobody stood a chance. Not the Seleucids, no. not the Ptolemies, nobody. So the Romans, at first, this was like a province. Yeah. But after some more hawkish people, uh, again, wanted to stir up trouble and you can't tell us what to put in the, in the temple and you can't tell us this and you can't appoint that. Some more wars until the final destruction of uh, the temple, the final burning of Jerusalem as it was, you know, uh, as a Jewish center. Mm. The temple now bigger and better is burnt again. Then... Roman general and future Roman emperor, Titus, erases <laughs> Jerusalem from historical memory for three, four hundred years until Christian Romans yeah. Yeah. <laughs> come back here and point to some stuff in Jerusalem uh, claiming that this or that uh, spot are from the new stories, new biblical stories of the New Testament. And uh, Titus uh, changes the name of the Roman province uh, from Judea into Palestine or Syria, Palestine, Syria after the mighty Assyrians, Palestine after the not so mighty Philistine. A political decision <laughs> that uh, still has uh, ramifications uh, today, as everybody knows. <laughs> 70 AD, another exile that lasted for 2,000 years. This is insane that I live here now. <laughs> yes, it's amazing that it's happened, isn't it? Well. Well, uh, okay. It, it only took 2,000 years. But what is that? What is that in the eyes of God? Yeah. <laughs> okay. next, next year, Jerusalem. Well, you don't have to say that anymore. Yes, no, we don't have to say it anymore. Yeah. So just imagine all that uh, pent-up energy for 2,000 years. Hmm. Now, just like... Now it actually this place actually exists. Now all the places written in the Bible you can find them. Ooh, this is uh, it's good for hawkish uh, people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> promotes hawkishness. Uh, so I've heard that uh, one of the reasons that I've, I've read uh, some scholarly hypotheses, hypothesi, hypothesis, hypothesis. Like in plural. Singular hypothesis, yes. Plural, plural. hippopotamuses. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I, I've read that there's a hypothesis that the Romans banned the books of the Maccabees 
and all these books because they were insidious uh. insidious in that they promoted uh, rebellion and they had all this trouble with the Jews and were like no you're not gonna this is you can't have those books anymore no books for you <laughs> I, I must admit I've never heard that and actually just as a reminder one day we may I'd like to do an episode about the um, the great Jewish revolt against the Romans because that has been completely reinterpreted in the past 15 years. Okay. Completely reinterpreted. Yeah. And, and just a fascinating experience. Let's look at the overall picture that we discussed. Uh, if I like, I like the, the historians who put like the end of the Iron Age when the Babylonians fall and the Classical Age starts with the Persians. Seems like a, like a nice, solid way to split yep. those two periods up. Yes. So basically, the, the period uh, that the, all these books were written is about 850 BCE under Assyrian domination. Then some more books were written a little bit in the 700s BCE. And as the, with Ashur King, Assyrian king Ashurbanipal, there's like a, sort of an arms race, like a stories race, a writing race. In the 600s, so much writing, so much writing in the 600s of rules and laws and stories. And then the Babylonians come in, destroy everything, and these writing and texts start to go either to Egypt or to Babylon with the, their respective communities that continue to write. And only under uh, Cyrus and Persian times, all these two traditions and all these books are connected, then further edited and re-edited and re-edited and redacted across generations until it took its, its final form uh, around the first, the first centuries CE. Yeah. By then, the Persians were gone, the Hellenists came in and then replaced by the Romans. And then with the second exile, it basically promised that this book would survive because it went all over the world, <laughs> or the known world. And we still have it. That's how we still have it. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. I mean, there are many older stories, uh, like Babylonian Chronicles and Gilgamesh, but they were lost. They were lost until the 19th century. Whereas we've had the Jewish scriptures for a solid 2,000 years, haven't we? They were never lost. Yeah. Just like we don't know, you know, what they took out, what's not there anymore. That's true. What we really need is the publishers' meeting of the editorial board for the Tanakh, where they're going through what's in, what's out. Yeah. This book needs tidying up. This one's fine. That's right. what we need the records for. And I want, I want to be there and just like everything they want to throw out, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll throw it out. <laughs> <laughs> Get, step, back, step back into my time machine. Bring it yeah. here. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I promise I'll shred it. Promise, uh, promise. Promise, promise. I swear in the name of who, who sh he who should not be named. He should, uh, he should, he should, Hashem. I think we have like a general, uh, like a general picture. Like we made a little bit of order, right? Put things mm. in order, and uh, I think it was uh, quite helpful. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed it. I hope so too. So uh, thank you, Gary, and, and thank you, Gil. It's been a delight as ever. 
we'll now have to find another uh, topic to collaborate. Yes. Okay, so I hope uh, you enjoyed uh, listening to this conversation. Don't forget to check out Gary's podcast, History in the Bible. And some of the history that we talked about today, I don't want to say which so as not to spoil it, will be very relevant in episode 41 in the story where Moses killed an Egyptian man. That episode is coming in two weeks. Next week on Sunday, I'm posting another collaboration, a very, very, very special collaboration with a supremely talented storyteller who took the story, the beef between Jeremiah and Shmaya that I discussed in the last episode and turned it into a story. <laughs> You'll have to check back next week to listen to the thing. It's just uh, wonderful. Just wonderful. Also coming in the next few weeks, I want to post a recap about all that we've learned in the last few months just to make sure everything is in order. Also, I'll start posting exclusive content on patreon.com slash proportions if you want to join the tribe. And I also have another podcast called As Depicted on Film with my uh, friend, Dr. Rutger Voss, where we talk about uh, different film depictions of a topic. We change topics each time. For example, the last one was Christian Rome on film. So we had three films. We had Constantine and the Cross from 1969, from 1961. We had Agora from 2009. And we had King Arthur from 2004 to carry us across the timeline. And the depiction of Christianity also changes radically, as you can imagine, between the different periods. So check out As Depicted on Film. Thank you everybody for listening. Bye, I'm Gil Kudron. <laughs>